God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Resurrection, and welcome. Bienvenidos a todos. If you're joining us online for worship, welcome to you. My name is Father Jonathan Warren Pagan. I'm one of the assisting clergy here at Res. Mother Tish and I are still pretty new here, uh, so if you haven't met us yet, please do say hello on, the, on your way out. We'd love to uh, connect with you, get to know you a little bit. So um, over these past few weeks, we've been going through a series here at Res on community, thinking together about what Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community and how it can take shape here at Res. What are the postures, the attitudes, the dispositions, the practices necessary for this community to be a community that gives glory to Jesus and that can manifest and proclaim Jesus to our beautiful and beloved city of Austin? So this week we're going to be thinking together about how we speak to one another in the beloved community. Something we don't notice often enough in the scriptures is the importance and the centrality that's given to speech, to loving speech within the beloved community. The letter that James writes to the Jerusalem Christians says that the tongue can be an instrument of life or an instrument of death. It can raise us as a community to heaven or it can unleash the fire of hell upon us and burn the whole thing down. The tongue, James tells us, is like the rudder of our ship. As goes the tongue, so goes the community. And as we get into what Paul is saying here to the Galatian Christians, we're going to find that Paul is in complete and total agreement with James on the centrality of loving speech in this community of Jesus. And Paul actually even gives us more guidance than James does, because he takes us back into the holiness code of Leviticus, which you heard read to you this morning. In chapter 19, it says, you may not hate or take vengeance on your neighbor. You may not go around slandering your neighbor, but you must what? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So when Jesus is asked to summarize the law, he quotes first Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema prayer of Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then Leviticus 19, 6, I think. What does it say? You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? So Paul follows Jesus here and says that as it concerns the community, you shall love your neighbor as yourself sums up the entirety of the law. Okay, it's really important for us to dive into what Paul is saying here, because he's not just saying, be nice, y'all. We owe so much more to each other in the body of Christ. What he's doing by taking us back to Leviticus is saying that it is intolerable to see in the body of Christ behavior and action and speech that rends the body of Christ apart from one another. He says that when we do this thing, when we do these kinds of things, we are, we are engaging in acts of the flesh. The word flesh here is Paul's word for a life and a community that is in rebellion against the purposes of Jesus Christ. So when we engage in these acts of the flesh, Paul is saying, we're destroying the community of Christ. Here's what the kind of lives and community that, that Paul is describing here that's characterized by flesh looks like. It's characterized by these kinds of actions. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Now, I don't know about you, it's a little weird for me. I, I, I always get like tripped up on that. Why are you including witchcraft here and this list of things that's going to destroy the community? Some of us might get a little weird, but we're not talking about like crystals and astrology here, okay? This is black magic, like super dark stuff. So Sarah Rudin, who's a classicist at Harvard, is trying to describe what Paul is talking about here. And she recounts a little bit of what sorcery looked like in the ancient world by by, uh, quoting from the Roman poet Horace. 
And he talks about a small boy being buried up to his neck and being left to starve while staring at food to prepare his liver and his bone marrow for a love potion. That's the kind of stuff Paul has in mind when he says, hey, don't do this kind of stuff. This is going to destroy your community. Okay, that's what witchcraft means for, for Paul. And it's really helpful for us to have that in mind as we think about speech. Because saying deadly speech, it's like that. You're destroying each other. So after he lists these community-destroying actions, he then talks about community-destroying speech. And he also talks about community-destroying emotions. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, but let's look at the speech. He's listening to this list. He says, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. Those who engage in speech that looks like that, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. This kind of speech destroys the body of Christ. I mean, just look at the speech Paul is talking about. It's spiteful and boastful speech. It's toxic and contemptuous and mocking speech. Now, that can be overtly hostile and aggressive, or it can be subtle and passive-aggressive. But what Paul is, says, Paul is talking about when he looks at this kind of toxic speech, he says, he says those who engage in it are going to be put outside of the kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness. That's really high stakes, isn't it? I mean, we think it sounds pretty harsh, but it only sounds harsh to us because we don't believe as much as Paul does that the body of Christ on earth is the hope of the world. I mean, this is what Paul says about the church in 1 Corinthians 3.15. He says, the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Look what he says in Ephesians 1.23. He says, the church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Like, if we're going to be believers who believe the scriptures, and we give authority to the scriptures, then our ecclesiology, our, our, our understanding of the church, has to be at least as high as St. Paul's. The church does not just represent Jesus in this world like a broker represents you in a real estate transaction. The church, he says, is the fullness of Jesus Christ here on earth. It fills the earth with the presence of Christ, just like Christ fills all things in his ascension. So if the church is acting in such a way as to destroy the reality of that mystical union with Christ, if the church fails to be the ground and pillar of the truth and the fullness of him who fills all things in every way, that's not a small deal. That's not like your real estate agent forgetting to get your signature on the contract, right? That is a catastrophe. So Paul is not messing around when he tells the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Galatia that they have to figure out how to live by the Spirit and not live according to the flesh any longer. So if the acts of flesh destroy the community of Christ, then walking by the Spirit does the opposite. It builds up and it fortifies the community of Christ, and it makes it attractive to those who are on the outside of it. When those who have the Spirit live by the Spirit, our actions and our speech manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Come on now. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I feel like we all got to get that crocheted and put it up right in front of the door. You know what I mean? In our houses. That's what Paul says. Action and speech and emotions, I'll get there in just a second, that are walking with the Spirit look like. Against these things, there's no law. These are things that Christ has liberated us to use our freedom to do. These are dispositions that the Spirit grows in us as we're made into followers of Jesus. And they have outward manifestations in speech and in action. 
Now, look, Paul doesn't give us any examples of this kind of speech and action. Notice there's not an exact parallel between the acts of the flesh, which he names very specifically. He doesn't do the same with the fruit of the Spirit. But he gives us a test. He gives us a test. He says, if I'm going to say this thing, if I'm going to do this thing, if I'm going to feel this thing, does that speech manifest the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Let's do it again. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And thereby encourage and build up the body of Christ? Or does it do the opposite? If it's going to build up the body of Christ when I say or do or feel this thing, then yes, I ought to do it. But if it's not, if it's going to do the opposite, if it's going to cause us to bite and devour one another, then I should bite my tongue or I should abstain from that action. Should always remember this. Next time we're on Twitter, y'all, just, just think to yourself, does this manifest love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, justice? And if it doesn't, then don't do it. Don't say it. Now, I want to come back to the fact that Paul names not only speech and action here, he also names emotions. What Paul is saying in our passage in Galatians today is that destructive speech and destructive actions are bitter flowers that come from a certain kind of root. They flower from the root of emotions, emotions of resentment and hatred and discord and distrust. These are community-destroying emotions, Paul says. They they lead to community-destroying speech and actions. So we have to walk with the Spirit, not only in our speech and our actions, but we also have to walk with the Spirit in our emotional lives. We have to make no provision for the flesh, not only in our speech and our actions, but in our emotions. This is the harder thing, isn't it, actually? So we can imagine being in a community where everybody's nice because they have to be, but not because that community has been characterized by emotional wholeness and integrity, healing in the deepest and most interior parts of ourselves by Jesus Christ. Look, we can, we can slay everybody in our hearts and our imaginations, and everyone knows that that's what we're doing, even if we're, we're abstaining from speech and actions that are, that are, according to the letter of the law here to Paul, are, are beyond the bounds. But, but, I mean, I grew up in the South, right? And I grew up in a Puerto Rican family. I know exactly how to murder everybody in my heart while being nice to your face. <laughs> There's a million ways to do this, right? But Paul does not tolerate this kind of double-mindedness. He says you've got to be healed by Jesus all the way down to your interior depths if you're going to be part of making the beloved community. In the church, we often talk about the importance of orthodoxy, right belief and right worship. That word doxos, it means both things in Greek, worship and, uh, and belief. And we also talk about the importance of orthopraxy, right behavior, right actions. You came to Deacon Ryan's shape class last week, you heard these are really good things, but what we really need is participation in God. That's a little summary of Ryan's. Ryan's talk last week, so if you missed it, there you go. Look, orthodoxy and orthopraxy are incredibly important, but we also need to talk about orthopathy, right feeling in the Christian life. All three of these things, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy, are integral to Paul's vision of the beloved community here in Galatians. Paul uses two words to describe destructive emotions here in verse 24 in Galatians. Pathema, or the word that's translated passions, and epithumii, or the word that's translated desires. Now, these two words are very helpful because they highlight different facets of the kinds of emotions, the kind of negative emotions that Paul is talking about. The word pathema, or passion in Scripture, refers to something that is suffered. So we talk about 
The, the passion of Jesus Christ, for instance, right? For instance, Christ suffering upon the cross. Emotions described as passions highlights their capacity to make us fly off the handle and lose control. And when Paul talks about emotions as passions, he's drawing on a long tradition in Greco-Roman philosophy by describing them in this way. The Stoic philosopher Seneca, who's like a rough contemporary of Paul, was fond of comparing emotions to fire and to currents of the sea and to fierce gales. The emotions as passions are intruding forces that hurl the self about, cause it to blow up or explode. They cut the self into pieces. They tear the self from limb to limb. Incredibly violent imagery, right? But this is exactly the kind of thing that Paul has in mind when he talks about the emotions as passions. On the other hand, describing an emotion as a craving, epithumiae, highlights the intensity, the particularity, and the acuteness of the longing that we feel when we feel deep emotion, as well as its disordered quality. So what Paul is saying here is that a craving is an intense attachment in our emotional lives. And there's something about either the object of our attachment or the way or the degree to which we are attached to it that is at odds with the kingdom of God and therefore at odds with our own flourishing either as individuals or in community with one another. Here's the problem as Paul sees it. These passions and cravings are not simply a problem of will. It's not just a failure of the will that we can fix by redoubling our efforts and bearing down. And it's also not the case that these cravings and passions are simply a failure of thinking about the world wrongly. So we can correct that with more theological education. Not a bad thing, right? We want to be more theologically educated, but that's not the solution either. These cravings are not simply a matter of bad habits, which we can correct with life hacks or better socialization or a killer app. I mean, I'm all about those killer apps, right? But I'm just telling you, that's not what Paul's after here. We cannot fix what Paul is about here through therapy, as important as therapy is. All of these things can be good uh, practices in the process of God healing us, but they very easily become substitutes for the real things in ways that we run away from or avoid what God is really after in our own lives. As important as any of these things can be in our journey, healing for cravings and passions comes in fits and starts, slowly and over the course of an entire lifetime, through deep union and communion with God. Participation in God, as Deacon Ryan put it in his last speak. Deep union and communion with God. As Christians, our faith commits us to the fact that what is wrong with us is beyond any human capacity to cure. And it commits us to the fact that the virtues and dispositions we need to live out in the beloved community are beyond our capacity to produce. If what we lacked was simply a a matter of having a good example, then the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would not have needed to become incarnate or die cross or be raised again on the third day or ascend into heaven and intercede for us forever at the right hand of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Instead, what Jesus says is that we need to be united with him by the power of the Holy Spirit so that through Jesus, we have intimacy with the Father of Jesus. That's where the power is. Intimacy with the Father. When this happens, as Jesus says in John's Gospels reading for today, you will realize that I am in the... Sorry, excuse me. You will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. At the heart of Christianity is a process of being grafted more and more deeply into the life of God, which flows into us, and through us, and out of us, into our relationships, our friendships, our families, neighborhoods, workplaces, into our beloved city. At the heart of this transformation are intensely felt 
but rightly ordered emotions. These emotions are vital to the work of God and making the church into the beloved community and then through the church extending his love into the world. So what we, what we see when we look at the Gospel of John is that what the Holy Spirit does in us is to foster a new kind of attachment in our lives. Instead of being attached to money or status or fame or pleasure, we attach to the Father. We develop a deep intimacy with the Father of Jesus Christ. This familial language that Jesus uses here in this passage is very important as we try to grapple with what this relationship means. The Holy Spirit, he says, does not leave us as orphans. How important is that, y'all? Especially if you grew up in a broken family. You're not orphans. You have a family. Tios y tias, it sounds like. Brothers and sisters here in the family of God. And most of all, preeminently above all, Jesus Christ. Your brother. And the Holy Spirit makes us his brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Father. This familial language is incredibly important because we are people who now have intimacy with the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the intimacy with the Father that we have through the Spirit brings us into deeper relationship, deeper communion with Him. And it forms in us the peace that we see in Jesus. Jesus says this here in our passage. Peace I leave with you. My own peace I give you. When we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we see that he is not a person without emotions. That's not the kind of peace he's talking about here. He's not a person without emotions, not by any stretch. Jesus feels the full range of human emotions and he expresses them all. And above all, what he expresses is indescribable joy and delight and humor. Now, if you don't see that when you read the Gospels, that's okay. I didn't either, but I recommend, highly recommend a reading of Elton Elton Trueblood's The Humor of Christ. It's a powerful book because he shows you, if you think like a rabbi, you can see that Jesus is hilarious. And here's the other thing. Jesus is always at a party. Jesus always is at a fiesta, right? He's always partying. It's really interesting and surprising, though, that this is Jesus' basic disposition. He emotionally feels things like sadness, but the dominant tone is joy. And that's surprising because he also lives very close to the neighborhood of chaos. He loves the unlovable, and in loving them makes them lovely. He acknowledges this here in John's Gospel. He says that the surprising nature of this, because he says the peace that he gives is not peace as the world gives. How do we get peace in worldly terms, right? We stack up piles of cash so that we can afford everything and not have any more financial worries, right? Or we cut off everything in our life that's causing us distress. That's how we get peace in worldly terms. But Jesus says his peace is not like that. His peace is not the absence of conflict or chaos. One of the things that I have noticed in reading through the Gospels intensively this last year is the fact that Jesus is always surrounded by enemies. They are sitting there evaluating him, judging him, trying to catch him in a trap, trying to trip him up. But like the the psalmist says, the Lord makes a table for him in the presence of his enemies. The peace of Jesus is not the absence of conflict or the absence of anxiety. It is actually a hidden wholeness in the midst of chaos and conflict and anxiety. 
The spirit that Jesus gives us unites us with him so that we can have this kind of peace, this kind of wholeness through the closeness we experience with the Father. And this is the kind of peace that we need if we're going to be the beloved community together, if our emotions, our speech, and our actions are going to reflect lives that are in step with the Spirit. So as we draw to a close, let me just tell you a little bit about my own experience with this. I am, like all of us, very much a work in progress. I don't have any of this figured out by any means. All you got to do is talk to Mother Tish or any of my children. They will let you know that my emotions have not been healed. I am a person that has been cut into pieces and tossed around and exploded by my emotions my entire life. That's okay. Just as it's okay that none of you have this figured out either. It doesn't matter that we haven't arrived. It matters that we are on the way. The Christian life is a life of fits and starts, of forgiveness and repentance. It's a life of grace. And that's very good news, my friend. It's a life where telling the truth about where we are is actually more important than the progress we have made. It's so important as Christians that we be truth-tellers, especially when it comes to sin. Because sin thrives in darkness. And it flees when the light of Christ is thrown upon it. Part of walking in the Spirit is confessing our sins. Confession breaks the power of sin. We should not pretend to be further along this path than we actually are. That itself is one of the acts of flesh that Paul is describing. But Jesus meets us where we are if we are transparent with him and with a few others that are trusted, that help us walk this arduous path of faith. So I've only very lately come to embrace the need not only for orthodoxy and orthopraxy, but orthopathy. As I came to Jesus as a young man, I discovered and was stunned by Christianity's intellectual tradition which is so much deeper and so much more profound than the shallow evangelicalism I grew up with. Now, I'm not dissing any of that. I love the intellectual tradition of Christianity. And I pursued it about as far as my powers would allow by getting a PhD in history, at, uh, at Christian history at Vanderbilt. And I do think that at times there's genuine joy and hunger for God in this pursuit. And I believe that at times I actually did seek to love God with all my mind, as the Shema prayer says. But I have also come to realize how regularly I have used study in a perverse way. It's a means of avoiding God and running from communion and intimacy with the Father. Remember, we can use any of those good things to avoid actual intimacy and communion with the Father. A little over a year ago, I was burned out on ministry and coming to reckon with the deep anxiety and distrust of others and of God that I've carried through my entire adult life. I realized that I had experienced precious little healing as far as my emotions go. So talking through some of this with my spiritual director, I decided to go through the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Now, if you don't know who that is or you don't know what that is, that's no big deal. Don't worry about it. It's essentially a very long retreat where you engage in a guided process of reflection and meditation on the scriptures, especially focusing in on the life of Jesus. There's no magic or rocket science in the spiritual exercises at all. It's just a daily practice of the examination of conscience where we give gratitude to God for the good things and the blessings in our lives. We confess our sins and, and ask for grace to amend our lives. And then for, and, and every day there's about an hour of imaginative meditation on a passage of scripture, most often drawn from one of the gospels that describe Christ's life and ministry. Now, like, I wasn't really initially disappointed that that was all it was, right? <laughs> it's like, this? <laughs> This is going to do it. I don't know. But I soon came to understand the truth of what this process offers. 
It's putting into practice what Jesus says here in John chapter 14. It's getting to know Jesus by what he said and did so that we can come to love and know him more deeply and then through him to come to know the Father. As I was describing what has happened to me over this last eight months to Father Sean, I told him that I feel like Jesus has been introducing me to my Heavenly Father. This is a little weird and maybe like slightly awkward to hear, but I always do these meditations in the bathtub. So yeah, I've got to know the Father in my bathtub, okay? That's all right, go ahead and laugh, fine. Now look, I am not healed. I am still being treated in the field hospital of the church, as we all are. My emotions are big and loud and destabilizing. But I realized about three months into the exercises that Jesus had given me his peace. On the day I realized that I had a truly terrible day. It was full of terrifying and overwhelming emotions. And I was stuck. What do I do, Lord? I don't know how I'm going to make it through today or tomorrow or next week if this is how I'm going to feel. But the thought occurred to me as I had those same anxieties and fears, that that night I would be meeting with the Father again in my bathtub. (laughs) And that the power of the Spirit for healing would be there with me. And in that moment, the whole world was new for me. And from then on, I've been utterly committed to the centrality of orthopathy in the Christian life. And the more that I read the scriptures, the more that that's what I see writ large there. That's what God wants for us. God is interested in our speech and our actions, but he's very interested in our interior depths. My friends, this morning, Jesus is calling us to be the beloved community. He is calling us to put to death the works of the flesh and to walk with the Spirit. He is calling us to orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and orthopathy. And his power for healing is here with us this morning. So as we come to the Eucharist, I invite you to come with hearts longing for his healing and ready to receive it as his loving presence is with us in this meal. Let's take a moment of silence to discern what the Spirit is speaking to us. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.